next guest speaking event. We are joined today by Dr. Greg Bechtel and we are going to be talking a little bit about speculative fiction and its place in the literary world. Welcome Dr. Bechtel, how are you today? I'm pretty good, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. So just for people who might not know you or, or who are just getting into the world of speculative fiction, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you define speculative fiction or what specfic means to you? Sure. Okay, so I'm Greg Bechtel. I have published one book of short stories that are kind of crossover speculative literary fiction, some realism, working on a couple novels, did my PhD on Canadian fantasy and a theory of speculative fiction, and I teach creative writing and English lit at the University of Alberta as a contract instructor. What's speculative fiction? Okay, well, I was thinking about this. This is the only thing I prepared for. So, okay, there's my definition, which is pretty basic, which is speculative fiction is imagining the world differently. It's just fiction that asks a what-if question. Uh, and it's a kind of a fuzzy category, but it, it violates some sense of what the everyday real world is right now. Um, so that could be magic, that could be science fiction, so it could be fantasy, magic realism, basically just an umbrella term. Oh, and horror, of course. So that's my working definition, which tends to be pretty common among Canadian SF speculative fiction writers, science fiction, fantasy, horror writers. Then there's Margaret Atwood, who says something different, and her definition is that science fiction is things that are impossible, and speculative fiction is things that are possible within the bounds of today's knowledge and science and whatever. I disagree with her, but she does, I have to admit, come out of a sort of a genealogy of the term, putting on my prof hat for a sec. Basically Heinlein decades ago, I think that in the fifties maybe, Heinlein proposed speculative fiction and he coined the term as a term for more sort of literary and rigorous speculation um, as, as a distinguishing subset of science fiction. So kind of like hard science fiction with a literary bent. And that's where Margaret Atwood's getting that from. Even though I think she's wrong, she isn't just making it up off the top of her head. It's just, you know, old. My genealogy comes from Judith Merrill, who's American or was American. And she published the first anthology of Canadian SF specifically Canadian SF called Tesseract. I think it was, this was in the early eighties and she was big on not defining what SF stood for. So she was like, it could be science fiction. It could be speculative fiction. It could be that she had like 10 different things. And she was like, I'm not sure what to call it, but it's cool. And that's what this anthology is. So you had mentioned that you kind of prescribed to a definition of science fiction that is came out of more of an American context versus a Canadian context. Do you mm. find that there's a significant difference in the way speculative fiction is defined and understood based on geography? Yes. What's interesting, or okay, so that's that's a good point of clarification. Judith Merrill was American, but she kind of founded, she moved to Toronto at a certain point and I don't know, saying she founded Canadian speculative fiction or Canadian, that, that sort of awareness of Canadianness in speculative fiction would be a, a 
No, that would be about right. She kind of created the awareness. The, 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 the writing existed before her, but with that one anthology, this was an anthology of Canadian speculative fiction or science fiction, SF anyways, which included a story by Margaret Atwood. And so this use of speculative fiction as a kind of an umbrella term is, is a very Canadian usage, in fact. It's starting to pick up a little bit more in the States, but for a while it wasn't. And I think part of that was reactionary to Margaret Atwood being very adamant about not writing science fiction. And this pissed off the international community. So in, in the American context, like five or 10 years ago, there were various terms. There was slipstream, which was used for cross-genre, halfway surreal, science fiction-y stuff that didn't quite fit into a genre. I don't know if I would say it varies geographically, but I think it varies culturally. SF is very community-based, both in Canada and in the States. And there's a lot of overlap and cross-pollination. But I would say speculative fiction is kind of a Canadian-ish term. It's been in use here since, like I said, the 80s, pretty commonly. And in the States, people still tend to, I think, gravitate more towards saying science fiction or fantasy or SF or SFF or those sorts of terms. And speculative fiction is uh, becoming more common, I think, as the field gets more diverse, in fact, as, as people from more diverse backgrounds are, are writing science fiction that's rooted in different cultures or stuff that doesn't fit sort of the, the standard definition of golden age science fiction, I think, and this is just me riffing, right? But I, I do think people are starting to use speculative fiction more as a, as a catch-all term that can encompass that rather than arguing about what's hard or soft science fiction or, or those sorts of things. Yeah, because I also wanted to talk to you about the blurring lines within boundaries, which I know is a, a bit of your specialty, because something recently that I guess caught my attention was when In Veritas by C.J. Levine was published, and the way it was marketed was mm. as like literary speculative fiction or literary fantasy, and that almost mm. strikes me as oxymoronical, but... Mm. Do you think like that shift is kind of becoming more present where like the, these boundaries and genre lines are being blurred a little bit more? I think so. I think I think it's just a I, I'm not sure if it's a generational thing, um, like if it's just a shift in culture as there's more SF kind of takes over pop culture. I think it's kind of spreading and more writers are, are just kind of being like, hey, why don't we do this? So I'm thinking about, yeah. In Veritas is a great, great book. I love that book. And yeah, it's published by New West Press, which is a literary, it's a small literary press, self-consciously literary, right? They've been publishing stuff that sort of steps into genre space for ages, right? Like Ice Fields is Tom Wharton's first book, and it's got lots of sorts of magic realist touches to it. And so that's been happening in the literary world you know even even like what's the woman's name who wrote bear marian engel about a woman who like falls in love with and has lots of sex with a bear i still haven't read it but uh but it's certainly not realism right so i feel like in some sense canlit stereotypical canlit has has been doing that stuff and blurring that content boundary for a long time but it's been called literary and i think now there's kind of a 
like I said, pop culture, the, the more it kind of ages and suffuses culture more generally and it becomes better known, I don't know, it's less frowned on, quote frowned on. I do think there's still a shift or a, or a division between sort of popular versus literary as sort of marketing genres. But I mean, uh, well, you were mentioning, I think before we started recording, you were mentioning uh, this is how you lose the time war. And there's no way to me that that's not a, an extremely literary book, right? But it's from an SF publisher and it is also very clearly SF. And I think CJ Levine's book is also clearly speculative and it's from a literary publisher. And so in some ways it kind of depends on who's, who's publishing the book and who's marketing it, who's willing to take a shot, a chance on that. And I think literary presses and, and SF presses are starting to overlap right? In terms of what they're open to and what they think they can sell and what they're proud of selling and, and getting behind and all of that sort of thing. But also I think maybe it's a generational thing, right? Like New West, the publisher, the people who are working there, they're a little bit younger now. And I've noticed a shift in their sort of aesthetic and, you know, they're publishing mysteries now. They're publishing that fantasy, which is also undeniably poetic, like the whole synesthetic I, I, yeah, I could rave about that book for a long time, but uh, I'll stop there. So I had something that I kind of wanted to talk with you about. And this is just like something of, of mine that I've noticed, um, because I think I had listened to an interview of you where you had said that speculative fiction, whether it is set in the past or the future, is always about the present. And I think there's still this kind of idea that there is literary and that is kind of like the highest form of like artistic um, expression in literature and then there's like lowbrow kind of science fiction fantasy horror those different types of genres yet mm. I find the interesting thing about speculative fiction or the thing that draws me to it the most is that it offers some of the most scathing critiques of the society and institutions and particularly oppressive institutions in the world we live in and yet it is thought of as like lower forms of entertainment, I guess, because mm. every kind of like speculative thing I've ever consumed has some kind of political leanings. There's a book by, what's her name? Jenna Glass called The Women's War, in which like medieval fantasy kingdom and women all of a sudden now have complete control over their own fertility. But even things like Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, highly, highly political, even though they take place in a completely fictional universe. I might get some angry comments later, but Star Wars prequels, <laughs> I think, for as fun as they are to make fun of, completely political because it's how liberal democracies can com be completely overthrown when consolidating power and become fascist. Like one of the McElroy brothers said, have I read your fascist? Absolutely not. Have I watched the Star Wars prequels? Yes, 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 yes. And that's how I, under <laughs> how I understand these things. And so I think all of those elements where these stories have something very important to say, but they're still thought of as like for the common folk of, of entertainment. And like, do you know why, or do you have an opinion as to why that is, or do you see it changing? It's a really good question. I, the simplest reason I think is snobbery. Um, and I mean snobbery in, in like that sort of Pierre Bourdieu cultural capital sense, right? Like, if you like something that everybody else likes, then you're not setting yourself apart. You're not superior. You, you gather cultural capital by being obscure and being hard to understand. And, you know, if you're one of the select few who understands Finnegan's Wake, for example, 
then then you are by definition kind of you have this cultural capital of of knowing a thing that other people don't so i think that's where the sort of the literary popular thing comes in i don't think it's valid to be fair well i mean it's it's interesting to me because i think because i think that same sort of thing can happen with fandom right there are you know there's there's the stratification of fans the 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 bullshit misogynist questioning of are you a true fan do you know x y and z facts and if you don't know all those facts and obscure things about i don't know star trek or whatever <clears throat> then you're not a real fan which gets mostly mobilized against women coincidentally because we live in the world that we live in i guess but i do think that's changing i tend to think sf is this really interesting kind of bellwether community it's always been kind of almost hyper political right like uh Sam Samuel Delaney has been writing for a long time. He's like super modernist, literary, intellectual, really hard to read a lot of the time, but also very political and and explicitly queer and uh, and black, and you know, won various awards, but also got a lot of pushback when he was first publishing in the SF world in the '60s, I think '60s, '70s, whenever he was starting. It was hard to break in. Now he's kind of iconic. I feel like SF has this sort of funny underdog effect. People sort of hold on to that outsider identity, right? I'm not literary, I'm SF. We're better than than that. And you get this one sort of thread in the SF world which kind of comes out of Gamergate and the sad puppies and the rad pu rabid puppies a couple years ago. That glomming on of extreme right-wing revisionist history which says, Get, get your politics out of my SF. And there's a really strong, and there's been a really strong polarization in the SF community around that. But there's also a strong reaction to that. And it's almost like as the diversity of, of the SF writing and reading community gets broader, more varied, the more that pushback seems to happen. And it seems to happen sort of like, and I'm, I'm exaggerating, I'm making weird, wild cultural theories about this out of, almost thin air, but call it SF chauvinism. I think that SF is like five years ahead of, of the world, right? In the sense of, of those cultural currents. So Gamergate presages sad puppies, presages Trump. That's an oversimplification, obviously, but it is how it lines up in the timeline, right? And were we talking about high and low culture? Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but no, it's totally um, fine. Well, I feel like high and low culture gets harder to maintain the more cultures you have thrown into the mix, I think is kind of what I'm thinking in response to that. It's like, you know, N.K. Jemison is is writing about oppression and she's writing about race and she's writing about race in secondary worlds in these really powerful ways. And in the real world or or in the sort of SF community, she gets she got a lot of pushback and there's this sort of that that stereotypical response of oh you're just there because you're you're there for diversity points and she talks about that in her hugo acceptance speech for the third book in her trilogy the broken sky broken earth trilogy which you know historically won best novel for the first second and third books of that three years in a row and i love it because she raises a rocket-shaped finger to her critics like here i am you, don't you tell me I don't deserve this. I did this and no one else ever has. 
I would highly recommend watching that. I think I did see that one mostly because when you were doing the one speculative fiction summer course, I had wanted to take it, but it fell like right during my work hours. But mm. Roy was in it. So I got him to like, just kind of on the download, just like leak me some of the stuff. That you're nice. uh, maybe I shouldn't be admitting that, but like, you're not teaching me anymore. So like, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's it. I'm retroact retroactively lowering your grade. Yeah, if you lower my grade, you can become one of the critics that I now have to overcome later in my career. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd be doing you a service, right? Yes, spite is a wonderful motivator, which is also why I, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, because N.K. Jemison love her and love that she was just like, ah, screw you, look what I did. I am actually a fantastic writer and you cannot do anything to stop me and I'm going to keep writing and being great. And I found maybe this is just like an offshoot, but I wanted to bring it up because speculative fiction I find is being written a lot by women and even specifically like women of color who are kind of taking back the like racist and sexist precedents set against them. So mm. um, H.P. Lovecraft was like infamously super racist and awful. Um, totally. But then you have books um, like Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad, who she is um, a woman of color and wrote this fantastic horror story novel and completely yeah. took back this like Lovecraftian mythology um, yeah. in her own way. And I think that's... And she lives in Edmonton. Yes, I did. I went to I went to her book signing. It was the last thing I ever went to before quarantine happened. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. But I find that interesting in that all of these kind of um, precedents that have been set kind of by the straight white male TM before are now being broken or taken back by the people that they were meant to keep out. And do you find that something that happens more in speculative fiction, because this may not be unique to speculative fiction of all, but just in the realm of speculative fiction in particular, do you find like that's just a thing that happens more? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, there's just too much out there to read all of it, right? And I was confused when the sad and rabid puppies stuff happened. And I was confused by this sort of narrative, this this narrative of rock'em sock'em manly adventures is good old science fiction and that's what we should be continuing to nominate and how dare you put politics in my science fiction and, and all of that. It surprised me. And, and the reason it surprised me is because I, I was thinking about this sort of recently is that the vast majority of, of like sort of the writers who've influenced me, science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction writers who've influenced me and that I've been reading for years, a lot of them are women and have been for a long time. So, you know, Ursula Le Guin, she wrote for a long time, granted a white woman. But she was there. She was part of all of that. Sherry S. Tepper, also been around for a long time. So my kind of background in, in SF reading was always these kind of, not, not necessarily explicitly political, like who was the Dragon Riders of Pern author? I forget her name. Super popular stuff, uh, sort of a science fiction fantasy blend in this future world. Anne McCaffrey, there we go. Yeah, that was it. Does that happen more in speculative fiction? I tend to think so, but I have idiosyncratic tastes and sort of influences and, and just what I happen to have picked up, right? I was never particularly into military sci-fi, right? So 
I feel like right now that this is the zeitgeist is that there's a push for diversity and there can be kind of tokenistic diversity that happens in the land of bestsellers, right? That sort of, there can be only one, you know, for a while, Joseph Boyden was the, the native writer in Canlit, but now there's a lot more indigenous writers in Canlit, right? And a sort of a bigger spread of that, which is great less of the there can only be one effect but i still think at the level of bestsellers well i mean that's just the way bestsellers work right you know a publisher picks someone this is the person we're pushing and pushing and pushing and that's how you get things like oh what was that american dirt <laughs> oh yeah the um, one that last bookshop was like we refuse to sell this don't yeah. ask yeah. yeah no exactly yeah so i mean that stuff still happens right so it's not like we're in a utopian, oh, yay, everybody can publish everything. There's still pushback. It's still shifting. Um, is that different in SF than in the literary world? I don't know if I have a big enough perspective or broad enough candle on the industry to know. But I do know that my, my sort of corner of the reading world in SF, which tends to be that sort of like more diverse, more interesting, more, I think... And I've been trying to figure this out, and I'm not sure if I figured it out yet, but um, there's a thing that China Mieville said once, I can't remember exactly where, he proposed that there's sort of two different kinds of readers, which is always a dangerous thing to say, but, you know, as a thought experiment. And uh, and what he suggested was there's there's readers who who read for estrangement, so seeing something different, something new that they haven't seen before, something they haven't experienced, and there's readers who read for familiarity uh, or seeing themselves reflected in the text. Um, and his sort of premise was, you know, obviously science fiction and fantasy is going to appeal more to people who read for estrangement, whereas realism is going to read appeal more to people who want to see themselves reflected in the text. I'll step away from broad cultural diagnoses, but, but I think for me, at least, reading speculative fiction, part of what appeals to me about it is the experiencing worlds and cultures and universes, laws of physics that I have not experienced that are new and different and, and possible. And so to me, that kind of like, that kind of cultural, cross-cultural reading, me reading in cultures that are not my own, also produce that produces that same sense of or a similar sense of estrangement of like i am immersed in a world that i don't know and i can get that in realism too if i'm reading a you know a thing about a part of the world that i don't know or an experience that i don't know but i get it more in sf but i just thought of like gideon the ninth tanton weir i think that's the one space lesbians basically it's really good um i don't know why i was thinking of that but anyway yeah. I'll recommend the book and shut up. I'll have to add it to my list. Do you think that because more often just in general, we're starting to see stories being told and being written by people from more diverse backgrounds, we're seeing more diverse stories. Um, sure. But in Specific in particular, do you feel like the genre offers like a unique way of doing it? Because speculative fiction can almost be like a sandbox where you can make anything out of anything, anything, anything mm -hmm. goes. And I feel like there's a lot of as we have mentioned earlier, political allegory that goes into it. So do you feel like there's more, more like leeway in that sense of like building kind of a convincing allegory 
for certain things that the author wants to speak out against. So I guess, for example, I'm going to bring up Avatar Lost Airbender again, because it's fantastic and everyone right. in this room should watch it. But it is incredibly anti-imperialism. Full Metal Alchemist is another one that I think is incredibly political, anti-military, anti-imperialism, kind of allegory for probably the, like the Iraq War. And so do you think because there's just, you can build a fictional world around the thing that you're speaking out against, there's kind of this draw to specific to, to do that? Like it just has more, I guess, routes to explore in that way? I don't know about more or less. I think as writers that, that it can be really useful in multiple ways. So as a writer, you can you can take this thing that you've that might be super hyper personal, might even be traumatic, right? And you can turn it into a magical version or or an otherworldly version, and it gives you almost enough distance to like turn it to on its side just a bit and get at that raw stuff in a way that is clearly fictional, right? So it's it's not autobiography. It is not directly engaging with, say, a trauma or a thing, you can almost go there, go to places that would be hard to get to head on. As a writer, say, you know, if you're trying to get to this, this uh, really difficult experience that you had, exaggerating it, turning it into something else, giving the character, you know, the revenge narrative that you wish you had, say, in a magical world, nobody's going to think you're actually plotting your revenge to go out and uh, go Fight Club on the planet or on capitalism. Whereas Fight Club has that sort of odd fringe of fans who are like, oh, this is a recipe, we should do this. So I think there's something, I don't know, useful in that way of almost dis distancing enough to be able to look at things with fresh eyes in the sense of estrangement, right? You take the familiar, you put it in a strange place or an unusual place and suddenly people look at it and they're like, oh, wow, that's fucked. And then they step out and they're like, look around at the world around them and they're like, oh, wow, that's the same thing. It's also fucked. And I think there's an added benefit too, right? Of, of almost being able to slip past people's censors. So if you want to make a political statement in speculative fiction, you can almost get away with it more and more blatantly because it's imaginary and people are immersing themselves in this kind of imaginary world, Last Airbender is a good example, right? There could be people who watch that and aren't thinking about <clears throat> imperialism in the real world. They're just like, this story is really cool and I like these characters and magic mm -hmm. is awesome. And they're not consciously thinking about that, but they're also at the same time, you know, you're you're on the side of the last airbender on the side of the avatar you're on the side of the of the anti-imperialist rebel forces um you know star wars too right and that kind of comes back out of the text with you right that even if it's not conscious it's going to shape the way that you think about the world it is funny i've i've seen a few times just like the moment of realization pop up in someone's eyes so did yeah. i finally did force my sister to watch all of avatar with with me because it came nice. onto onto netflix over the summer and then 
I, I drove her in and I'm just like, hey, did you know Mark Hamill is the Fire Lord? Like, the, the villain is played by Luke Skywalker. <laughs> and she was like, what? Um, so she she watched it for that and he had like just a few lines in the first season. She was like, there he is, my favorite white dude. Um, <laughs> but, nice. And then afterwards she finished the series and she was just like looking on her phone and, and she pulled away and looked at me and she's like, are we the Fire Nation? <laughs> and, <laughs> and she's awesome. like, and I said, yes, and we have to be the Zuko who steps up and says no and stops it. Um, right, right. I find particularly, and this is maybe my own rant that I might have to cut out of the podcast later, but mm. I think Star Wars fans are the worst, and I will go on record saying I love Star Wars. I hate Star Wars fans. Um, <laughs> they ruin everything. But I, I see that a lot, where in most of like the the kind of gatekeepy like sexism, at least I've experienced, comes from Star Wars fans. I, mean, I think we saw that a lot with like the release of the last jedi because they were like how dare there be more than one woman at a time right um, or just being particularly like right wing and i'm like you guys realize like this was the whole point the whole time right but that that's my own rant so some sometimes people can recognize it sometimes people can i guess fiction is a very fickle thing because it, it holds a lot of power in the in the ways that we see the world but sometimes it's not picked up on yeah, well, fandom is a funny space, right? Because people get so invested and, and yeah, can go off. And sometimes that can be an amazing thing, like mm -hmm. like these wonderful, super niche things. And I mean, you get fan fiction shipping this character with that character and doing things with a universe that the author possibly never intended or never even thought of. And maybe it's better. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, I'm probably just thinking of Harry Potter. I mean, there are going to be niche interpretations and fandoms and sub fandoms and and that loud white male angry fan base mm -hmm. well it's loud i don't know if it's <clears throat> as big as it seems i hope it's not as big as it seems i just i hope it's just like shouting and sounds bigger than it is and i also hope it's like a last gasp um yeah. that sort of like there, there's this wonderful sort of series of i don't know if it was an sf writer or somebody else uh, who had this kind of series of like, first they laugh at you, then they mock, then they do this, then they fight you, then they attack you, then they lose. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is like, then they attack you as they're realizing they're losing, getting louder. Shit, we're losing our, our control over, our apparent control over this thing. But that's not just SF, that's like the US and Canada as a whole. <laughs> when I think about that kind of, what, right-wing reactionary fury that's happening, I hope that it's happening because things are actually changing and, and that it's a really small minority, maybe even a small minority in Alberta, fingers crossed. But I don't know, right? Like I have a, a limited window into the world. My Alberta is the University of Alberta and a lot of writers and artists. So, you know. You hope it's a reactionary thing. You hope it's just kind yeah. of a... An instance of every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and that's just mm -hmm. the, the worst part that we're seeing. Oh, tying back to what I had said earlier, so I have a reason to keep it in the podcast, yes! But um, <laughs> The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang, I think is how you pronounce her last name. I still want to read yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, trilogy of books, they're at Audrey's, I think. Trilogy of books have won a bunch of awards, have gotten on like best fantasy lists several times over. She's fantastic. And yeah, yeah. Those books started as her asking herself the question, what would the world of 
Last Airbender look like if Azula, who is one of the villains, was the Avatar instead? And I think that's really interesting and it blossomed out to something incredible. And that's, I think, one of the things I like about speculative fiction and that it can have fandom in a way that like literary fiction doesn't in the same way is that Mm. it kind of goes on to inspire other things. I've seen things branch off and this author will inspire another writer who will go on to write another fantastic series. But I don't see that with like, I don't see a lot of like Jane Eyre fan, like fan fiction, I guess. I don't see a lot of like a lot of fandom around like the things you would maybe read in an English class. No offense to any English majors in the room. The entire romance genre could be seen as, as, you know, Pride and Prejudice fan fiction. I I guess, yeah. In a sense, right? Or maybe not fan fiction, more like just taking the tropes and it became its own thing. I think that actually reminded me. I would have to wonder if sometimes the kind of idea that specific or fandom is kind of a lower thing is because Mm. there's so many women and people of marginalized identities who write it and who read it. And the same Mm -hmm. thing with romance. I find a lot of the time romance gets like really talked down as like fluffy and cheesy and and whatever, but it's maybe not so coincidentally a genre that is written mostly and read mostly by women. Yeah, you wouldn't be the first to say that. No, (laughs) definitely not. And I wouldn't be the one to say that you're wrong. Yeah, no, it's totally a thing. I think YA has the same problem for all of it, all of its issues. And I think YA, like for myself, like the Hunger Games was a very formal experience for like 12 year old me and was like kind of my first introduction to like maybe like Mm. science fiction and, and political justice too. Those books are so political and like they have a lot to say about like the nature of society and like how systems oppress other systems and had imagery harkening back to like Roman gladiatorial days as a way of saying like things haven't changed and humans are awful always. But then that was marketed down as like, it it was just the love triangle. These are things that like silly teenage girls read. It was written by a woman, whatever. Because I think a lot of why it can also be treated as speculative fiction. I totally think that The Hunger Games is speculative. Sure. It was treated like that as well. Mm -hmm. Because I can link it maybe later, but Lindsay Ellis had a video essay on this, particularly about Twilight, about how much hate it got because like the market audience was teenage girls right teen um, girls yeah. are get yeah. talked down yeah yeah and so i mean i can when the when this episode comes out i can maybe link it down below because she does a far better job than i can she's far more eloquent than i mm. about explaining that but i think that's just like an interesting thing interesting in that we live in a society <laughs> i don't know <laughs> 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 interesting in meaning deeply disappointing i guess Uh, Yeah, sort of a side effect of living in a patriarchal society, therefore, you know, it's the you throw like a girl effect. I think at one point you had mentioned speculative fiction writers are the engineers of possibility and different Mm. kind of new social realities. Would you Mm. mind elaborating a bit on that as to to what you mean? Sure. First, I stole the line from N.K. Jemisin in that speech. She's the one who says, you know, we, we science fiction writers are engineers of the possibility. And I just love the way she phrased it. And it's the thing that she's, you know, she's making the argument and others have made the argument. And I would make the argument too, that in order to, I don't know, create a better world, right? You need to imagine it first, basically. If you wanna change the world to make it better, you have to be able to imagine that. 
I think this is why realism bothers me, especially depressing realism, because I'm like, I'll, I can read a story or I can read a novel and I can be like, this is so gorgeously wrought and wonderfully written and really insightful and extremely depressing. And I already knew the world sucked and I don't need to immerse myself in that in fiction. Whereas if I'm reading speculative fiction, science fiction, whatever, I mean, I don't exclusively read utopian stuff. I read, you know, N.K. Jemisin, which is not exactly light, but there is, you know, the ability to imagine the world differently. And that differentness, having once been imagined, it's in your head. It's there. You start to crave it, right? And I think that's a thread sort of in speculative fiction in general, Tolkien talks about this, right? And he talks about it in religious terms, and I'm not a big fan of that part. So he talks about the escape of the prisoner. He talks about that in military terms, which I'm less uncomfortable with slightly. And he talks about sort of like how escapism is is frowned on because it's not realistic. And, and why do you want to escape into this other world? And, and this is like in what? the 40s or late 30s and he and he says well you know think about a think about the real world and someone who's a prisoner in this horror in a jail like they're a prisoner of war what is their first duty their their first duty is to escape that's their job is to escape and get back to the fight or you know escape from this oppressive regime in which they're trapped and if reality is the oppressive regime in which you're trapped the first job is to escape it to be able to imagine the world differently, you know, and, and speculative fiction isn't the only way you can do that, but is a way you can do that. You go in to this world and you, you're like, oh, this is possible and internally consistent. And this, this construction of the world makes sense. And it's also a horrible world in ways that are similar to ours, but it gets changed because that's so often the premise of like, science fiction, fantasy, etc., is, you know, the big reveal, the, oh my God, the whole world just changed, which makes, oh my God, the whole world just changed imaginable in a, in a, in a sense. I feel like I'm talking in vague terms, but I do think that's important. Um, oh, yay, I get to bring in Charlie Jane Anders. I wanted to mention her. Uh, one thing that I've been using in my classes recently is she's got this series that started coming out just around the beginning of the pandemic, actually. It's been published through Tor. I don't know if it's still going, but it's a it's a writing book. She's serializing chapters of this book on writing called How to Get Through Hard Times by Writing Stories. And her introduction to that is just brilliantly sort of riffing on this, this uh, idea, this sort of sense of those who tell you that the world can only be one way are trying to convince you, right? That, that you don't get to exist. You don't get to be the way that you want to be. And, you know, the first duty in a fascist regime is, is to assault. I can't remember how she phrases it, but it's something about attack the walls of bullshit or, or something along those lines. It's beautifully written. Yeah. Assault against the forces of reason of, of this is how it is. And this is how it will always be. And sort of like mounting a frontal assault on that by just writing gonzo crazy reimagined whatever it happens to be you know revenge fantasies against horrible people or or like breaking the universe in a in a like way that makes other universes possible i don't know i'm rambling again but but yes charlie jane anders 
How to Get Through Hard Times by Making Up Stories, highly recommended. I've really been enjoying giving that to my classes. And it's inspiring, right? It's, it's just full of sort of anecdotes. And it's clearly written during the pandemic, which is really something. This sort of like, you know, you're feeling exhausted. How do you write when the world, when the world is burning? I think that's one of the chapter headings, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's really good stuff. No, I think we all felt that to some extent. I, I know it's just speaking from my own experience, I did where I just couldn't couldn't write anything. I would get a text from friends, like, how's the writing going? And I'm like, the what mate? Yeah, and I think <laughs> everyone's gone through waves of that, like I yeah. have, like right at the beginning of the pandemic, I stopped, I just stopped and had an idea for a new book, oddly, which I wasn't writing, but I've written 600,000 words of journals on mm -hmm. about or something. I don't know what the book's gonna be, but. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, maybe I'm just rambling on, I'm, that's fine. Uh, yeah. I'm just gonna convince myself. I've been doing it lots, so now I'm it's gonna, your turn. Yeah, I'm gonna convince okay. myself it's fine. But I think the, terrible things that happen to to us or just while the world is burning can inspire good fiction or inspire fiction because i know that that did happen to me and i had friends who were like you need to write this down over like the course of the pandemic i actually like was diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety and mm. like things just kind of like started to fall into place where i realized like oh yeah like being being the weird kid in like middle school and elementary school this is not surprising to anyone but being the weird kid in elementary school and middle school like most of the things that made me that was either being queer or undiagnosed mental illness and it's just it's a very privileged position to say like that the pandemic is a time for self-reflection because for a lot of people it wasn't but just when everything kind of blows up or if the world's on fire, we just write it down because that's, that's, that's the only response that we have, I think, maybe as, as artists. I also like with speculative fiction, this is just like a personal thing, but because the genre lines are so blurred, the speculative fiction community just came together and made our own thing, just made our own genre and was like, this is SF yeah. and this is ours now and we can do whatever we want with it and we don't have to play by your rules anymore and we're going to have a good time. And I think that's yeah. a very wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And it's nice that it sells. I mean, that's that's oddly capitalist logic, but I mean, just even, even in the sense of like, you know, Black Panther being a huge hit, suddenly this becomes a possible thing that you can like sell to execs who are, you know, capitalist bastards, but they can also put this thing on a big screen and promote the hell out of it, right? So. We always get here. It, it really does. Capitalism just sucks the life out of everything. Not not in terms of Black Panther, because Black Panther was great. And, and it's fine <laughs> if we get here. I think every guest speaking event, that we, the conclusion we always draw to is just like, capitalism sucks. So <laughs> we've, we've hit the next point for a guest speaking event. What kinds of perspective would best enhance a different style of specfic? Epic works are difficult to do are difficult to begin with. So so perhaps beginning with a more quote unquote down to earth work would allow for for more comfort in sci-fi and speculative fiction writing. So like the idea that world building is big and hard and therefore sort of starting with the real world and then tweaking it, that kind of, yeah. I, I, I hate to be prescriptive, right? So, I do think as a as a writer, the easiest, not easiest isn't quite the right way, word for it, but maybe the easiest thing to, to sort of draw on is one's own experience. 
Would speculative fiction be considered a subset of science fiction or its own uh, organic growth? Right. That really depends on who you ask. So if you ask Margaret Atwood, she would say speculative fiction is the opposite of science fiction. Speculative fiction for her is what's possible and science fiction for her is what's impossible. If you ask John Clute, who's a science fiction scholar, also Canadian, interestingly enough, though he lives in England, he would sort of hearken back to that Heinlein sub idea that speculative fiction is a subset of science fiction. So science fiction is the broader field that can in involve soft science fiction and hard science fiction and so on. And speculative fiction is like a little subset of that, which is particularly literary and particularly possible. Or the sort of contemporary Canadian usage, which is mine, is speculative fiction includes science fiction. It is the umbrella term. It includes science fiction, fantasy, magic realism, experimental writing, Italo Calvino, imaginary cities, and, and uh, all of that. Basically, anything that's not realism falls into speculative fiction in my definition. So Animal Farm is, is, is an allegory. To me, that would also be speculative fiction because it's, you know, it's not the real world. I think the best way to go back to that sort of the original question was, you know, what's the best way in for different types of fiction? The best way in is, is whatever comes out. <laughs> if you're writing this stuff, write what works for you, right? What comes out? Um, I think some of the most interesting stuff can happen when taking an existing genre and writing it in a way that's not normally seen in that genre, right? So, you know, epic fantasy tends to be very big in that stereotypical sense, right? I mean, if we're thinking about the Lord of the Rings anyways, you know, there's histories and, and millennia of history and all of that sort of thing. If you want to tell a very small personal story in a very local space that doesn't include a long overland quest to go somewhere else, but is just like, oh, hey, dude, there's a dragon hiding out over here. And your protagonist really likes dragons, but everybody hates dragons. So, you know, everybody's out to get the dragon because the dragon's going to like kill all the virgins and stuff. Meanwhile, Dragons actually not very big, hiding in a hole somewhere, and teenage kid stumbles across it, and the dragon's like, could you please hide me? That That's not what one thinks of as epic fantasy, but it's all in that space. You can apply any style to any genre, basically, and any subgenre, and sometimes a contrast of style and expected genre can be really interesting. So I would say, like, just don't be afraid to go in the direction that your writing wants to take you and find out what that is, right? Knowing what the conventions are can be useful, but also fucking with the conventions is extremely useful because the particular way you approach a thing is never going to be the way anyone else does. I don't know if I'm a hot taker other than, I mean, my I think my biggest hot, it's not a very hot take. It's It's a take that I've had for a while, which is, Margaret Atwood annoys the shit out of me. Not as a writer. She's a brilliant writer. The fact that she wrote an entire book justifying her definition of speculative fiction, which I think is wrong, bothers me. I don't know if that's a hot take. 
I wrote an essay on it once, got published, didn't get paid for it. It wasn't a, pro a professional publication. But I feel like hot takes have to be on like the moment, right? Like, what's a thing? What's my hot take? I don't know. What's a thing to have a hot take on? I'm not full of hot takes usually, other than, you know, capitalism sucks, universal basic income would be nice, these sorts of things. But again, are those hot takes or just kind of leftist convictions? I don't know. Yeah, what's the definition of hot take? That which contradicts the majority? Is that is that kind of what a hot take is? I don't know. This is a genuine question. I've had, that was my one hot take. Margaret Atwood annoys me. Uh, I used to feel bad about that. And now I, I feel less bad about that after the whole, um, what's his name? Stephen Galloway, UBC thing, and Margaret Atwood taking her stance on what to me seemed like the wrong side of that issue. <laughs> yeah, I'll just stick with the, with the Atwood hot take. I'm not alone in that take, but I'm sure there are other things I could think of that I would be willing to say in public that I might not say in polite company, but uh, nothing's springing to mind right now. I won't name the, the person who sent it to me, but I think they did describe it as old man Shakespeare at Margaret Atwood. But yep. that's very not, much, very much. That's not, <laughs> I mean, I mean, no offense, but I think one of the interesting things- I take none, yeah. Cool. I think one of the interesting things that I thought of was like Margaret Atwood becoming a, almost like a figment of our collective imagination that we form into a villain. Yes. Um, which is interesting. And maybe, I don't, I don't know when you wrote it, but it just reminded me of like the current situation around a one Miss or Miss Rowling. So- Right. It's just like, this is kind of happening again. History repeats mm -hmm. itself. She's becoming an iconic villain. Yeah. Uh, it says, this is a bit general, but what kind of themes do you think will resonate with SF audiences in the future and which ones might fade out? Oh, I have no idea. I'm terrible at predicting things. What sorts of themes? I think all the themes will always resonate. I don't think there's a majority. I mean... What sorts of themes will resonate with SF audiences in the future? I suspect as climate change takes effect, I don't know whether I could see, you know, there is a huge wave of post-apocalyptic fiction, cli-fi, and all of that kind of out in the world right now. We seem to be fascinated with disasters and, but then again, we always have been, right? Like um, Umberto Eco has, has this wonderful essay about the medieval era in which he says, you know, one of the subheadings is the end of the world again, because there were apocalypse cults in, you know, the year 1000 AD or, or sooner than that, where the world was about to end and everybody was certain and everybody was obsessed with the end of the world. And he kind of argues that, you know, Judeo-Christian Western culture has always been obsessed with the end of the world. But another way of looking at it is like, so, so now climate disaster is another obsession with the end of the world. So that's what's resonating now. Where's that going to go? I don't know, right? The, there could be a certain turn towards utopian fiction. Wanting to imagine a better world being possible. Maybe. Um, like we're in such a dark time right now. Apocalypse stuff can be a sort of escapist way of escaping, say, a global pandemic into an imaginary global pandemic which is somehow more comforting, easier to deal with than, than like the one that we're actually living in, which is oddly prosaic. 
I was going to say nobody expected this, except, in fact, an old friend of mine wrote a book that imagined a global pandemic that was a coronavirus that resulted in social distancing and started writing it 13 years ago, and it came out last year, just after the pandemic started. Uh, it's called Songs for the End of the World. I, I haven't read it yet um, by Salima, Salima Nawaz, but she's an amazing writer, and I am certain it will be brilliant. Will that resonate with people in the future? Well, I mean, its publication date got pushed up by, I think, five or six months because a pandemic happened and her publisher was like, okay, we, we need to publish this now because your book looks a lot like the world right now. And that's uncanny. And people will want to read this uncanny representation of the world that we're living in now that you started writing 13 years ago. Ah, so weird. Yeah, so I'm going to stop rambling about themes that will resonate with SF audiences in the future. I think the same ones that resonate now in different ways, it, as that it will always reflect our obsessions of the moment, right? But our obsessions change, and different populations will have different obsessions. So I see a new question. Maybe I'll move on to that one. <laughs> oh, if I had to recommend one book to convince someone of, oh, I can't just recommend one. I could recommend three. One would be be ah what's the first book of the broken earth trilogy the fifth season that's one second one would be black wine by candace jane dorsey brilliant brilliant genre crossing fantasy but with elements of science fiction sociological magical sf and just gorgeous writing we'll say that's a second one and and in fact uh in veritas would be another one that i would recommend and these are all, this is me sort of thinking of books that would appeal to self-identified literary readers. If there's anyone who would need to be or who would want to be convinced of the literary value of speculative fiction, it would be a, quote, literary reader. Or, you know, depends what you're into. If you're into James Joyce, I would recommend Dahlgren by Samuel, R. Samuel Delaney. It's sim similarly almost impossible to read and similarly brilliant. That's what I would do. If I wanted to convince someone of the literary value of speculative fiction, I would ask them what's the most literary work they can think of that they think is the apotheosis of literary. And then I would try to think of a speculative fiction novel that does something similar because I'm pretty sure I might not be able to come up with, with an example, but I'm certain the example exists in any given case, right? Or, you know, maybe The Tempest. <laughs> Shakespeare, why not? There's fairies. There we go. That's that's my multiple books to convince someone of the literary value of speculative fiction. I guess, yeah, The Tempest would maybe be considered speculative because there are magical elements to it. I've seen convincing arguments which postulate, or plausible arguments that postulate that the main thread of human literature up until the Enlightenment was basically speculative fiction. It was legends. It was the classics. It was the Greek stories of the gods. It was the Norse Edda. I mean, that was the stuff that was told. Realism. It's like a, what, 19th century invention? Maybe a little earlier than that, but not much earlier. Also worth keeping in mind. I mean, of course, cultural perspectives shift, right? Were these thought of as imaginary stories? Were they thought of as metaphorical stories? Were they thought of as real stories? I think it's possible that they could have been all of those at once. I think that's one of the mistakes 
that we make when we think about sort of, I don't know, legends or myths or all of that sort of thing, the assumption that people in, uh, in the past or in other cultures, in our sort of culturally imperialist sort of way, are less sophisticated than we are. Ever, I don't think that's ever true. I don't think we become more sophisticated over time. I think we just have different varieties of sophistication and they manifest in, in, in a thousand different ways, right? So, sorry, that's a ramble, but I think it's important. Stories of Raven creating the world. These are extant stories of extant cultures, um, Haida, Heisla, et cetera. They're not just like superstitious myths. They're real stories, living stories from living cultures that have living meaning, which I can't personally access unless I talk to a Heisla person who can maybe explain to me how this is real, not real, metaphorical, symbolic, all of those things at once. Yeah, I'll stop rambling on that one because I could go on for a long time and it's dangerous, especially dangerous for a white guy to go on about cross-cultural stuff. That's fair. Gotta stop while you're ahead sometimes. Yeah, stop before I stick my foot right in my mouth. Yeah. Um, hopefully. I will say as someone who studies and I'm paying a lot of money for a degree in classics mm. is that uh, no humans haven't changed at all. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking about the relationship between Gamergate, Sad Puppies, and the U.S. election. In a similar vein, when it comes to movements in the science fiction community, what do you think the relationship between the written literature side and the, quote, mass media, i.e. video games and movies, side is? Does one influence the other more? Do they have an equal influence on each other? Do movements originate in one, then transfer to the other later? Oh, there's like 10 different answers to all of those questions. Okay, caveat, video games, I don't know very well. I am a video game Luddite. So I know that there are awesome and fantastic and sophisticated games that I have never played and have barely even heard of. So I'm just going to set that one aside. Okay, so my instinctive reaction or, or my instinctive response is that, and, and this is instinctive and chauvinistic as a literature scholar and as a writer of text, my instinct is, is that for a long time, I think in speculative fiction, at least, the literary side has been doing wild and crazy experimentation and the mass media side has been, was, was kind of attenuated, right? And so like when Star Wars came out in the 70s, uh, written SF was like doing all sorts of wild and wonderful things that were not just the monomyth in space, but the monomyth in space was, you know, where that sort of starts in, in film. And that's an exaggeration. Obviously, that's not the first thing. But so I do think that was sort of the field at one point. I do think, though, now my personal impression is that that's threading back and forth. And what's really interesting to me is the more I get to know sort of science fiction fantasy writers personally, people are writing in multiple media. Right. So N.K. Jemison was writing comic book scripts. Neil Gaiman was writing comic books and also writes novels and is also now like his stuff's getting turned into TV and he's involved with that. I'm and I don't know if this is just a personal maybe this has always been happening. But as I've gotten to know more SF writers, I'm seeing them sort of jump from medium to medium. Right. So. I see people who publish short stories who are now writing for for television or who are now writing for something else. And 
I feel like the more spec fic gets into mass media, the more that feeds back into fiction, the more that feeds back out, there's going to be overlapping populations. So, so they just kind of like circulate, I think is a better way of putting it or cross pollinate is what feels like is going on right now to me. Also, yay, Netflix. I mean, I, I think one of the things that is making me happy lately is Netflix showing a lot of international science fiction and, and speculative fiction and fantasy and that sees the world differently or just isn't more Hollywood. Um, there was, I, I went through a period last fall, I think it was fall 2020, where I was watching almost exclusively German science fiction, The Dark, I especially loved. Very science fiction-y, very like time travel loops and weird dimensional stuff all over the place. And very clearly not Hollywood and in, in German subtitled, but um, I think that also feeds in, right? So that feeds into audiences, but writers are audiences. And so that's gonna, you know, give people ideas. And seeing sci-fi from other places in the world and like how those cultural contexts affect it, I think is something that's really fun to explore. Well, well you've got a pretty solid background in anime, right? A Yourself? little bit, a little bit. Um, <laughs> it got really bullied out of me in high school. And then I came to university and then uh, all of my friends were weebs. Uh, <laughs> and I, I kind of got back into it. Yeah, I rewatched Full Metal Alchemist for sure. I was like, hey, you know, I was really into this when I was like 13, 14. I'm going to revisit it and see if like, you know, maybe my tastes have changed. And I watched mm. it again at 20 and I'm like, no, this is awesome. <laughs> it's still really nice. good. But yeah, like there are different cultural contexts too. And sometimes it shows up in, in the tropes. Uh, I know like overly sarcastic productions did a like a, a comparison. And so like for a lot of our like superhero stuff, the like baby in a basket kind of Moses allegory is very prominent. So like Superman was like that. But then in yeah. Japan, it's like child just kind of springs up out of nowhere. And that comes from Momotaro, which was, a, or it was a, it was a Japanese mm -hmm. story that um, in the Second World War took on a lot of like anti-American connotation. Yeah, well, and but that is an international influence, right? And I guarantee you that there's lots of, well, I, I, I can't just, I don't just guarantee it. I've met writers who, who were huge anime fans who are now publishing stuff, right? And that's, a huge influence on their on their writing and that is an international influence uh depending on the anime right also a thing that lots of uh, women are doing and writing and creating full metal alchemist brotherhood and i'm going to mention it over and over and over again because it slaps <laughs> written written by a woman and it shows in how the women characters are written in that show would you then consider something like parasite like the korean film speculative fiction I know the SF community did. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. I'm bad that way. I don't want to spend money on subscribing to a lot of things. And yeah. therefore, there's like a thousand things that I'll hear, you know, just all the Twitter chatter about. Basically, I follow not exclusively, but largely SF writers on, on Twitter and Canlet writers and, and writers and publishers and, and just like also people who I've met. But yeah. Parasite, I don't know. All I know is that a lot of people whose opinions I respect in the SF community were like, this is the most amazing thing ever. So that to me would indicate that it's at least in that realm in some way. It, it caught the attention of that community. 
I'm not interested in genre policing, right? So who picks up what? Who gets what thing out of it? There's a reason I go with the umbrella definition of, of speculative fiction. I don't want to keep anything out. I mean, that used to be the old definition or a definition of science fiction. I don't know what the definition is, but I know it when I see it. Some science fiction writer said that, but I can't remember who. And, you know, maybe that's not a, quote, rigorous definition, but we don't live in a world of philosophy. We live in a world of fuzzy human categories. So, you know, there you go. If a bat seems bird-like, even though it's a rodent, well, it's bird-like. That, that's how our cognition works, how we put things in categories. Was the thing intended to be speculative fiction? I don't really care. Does it feel like speculative fiction to someone? Then, then it is in that way. And if it feels like that to a whole bunch of people, then totally. It's a communal construction of meaning. Therefore, yep, it, it qualifies, you know? Have you noticed, I guess, a surge in popularity within SF with things like fantasy being pulled more into the mainstream? So I guess something like Game of Thrones, which I know people who whose opinions I respect were like, yeah, I got bullied for reading this and now everyone's watching it on TV. Or something mm. like like The Witcher, um, which were kind of fringe video games. Maybe they were fringe, I don't know. Right, um, right. And then The Witcher got put onto Netflix and people seem to really like it. And there's kind of this growing interest in kind of dark fantasy genre spec fic. Do you think that there's any like particular implications that has on like the larger community as a whole? Or The simplest in implication is the more popular things get, the more out there it gets, the easier it is to sell more of that stuff. <laughs> the more weird things get popular, the more possible it becomes to sell weird things, right? To me, that that might be the, the biggest impact on, on at least the specific writing community is, you know, the more and the weirder and the more diversity and strangeness and less uniformity there is, the easier it gets in a capitalist society to actually sell your shit and make a living. And I say this as someone who cannot make a living from selling my shit. I mean, I teach because I need to make a living. My writing has not made me much money at all. It's garnered me a wee bit of cultural capital in a, in a tiny sliver of the world, and that's nice. I, I do like that. But there are, you know, there are lots of people who are writing this stuff and making a living at it. And that's amazing. And the more people can do that, the better, as far as I'm concerned. That's my short answer to the question, which I've forgotten. But I feel like I actually stayed on the topic this time somehow. How significant or different would the what-if aspect has to be in a story for it to be considered speculative fiction? One reason I'm asking this is that as technology advances, would that phase out or eliminate works and tropes that were prominent in the genre? That's one of those like interesting definitional sort of pseudo, not pseudo, that, that sounds dismissive, semi-philosophical questions that I think comes up when one's trying to define this stuff sort of rigorously in a logical sense. I mean, okay, if we want to be like super logical about what science fiction, I wouldn't say that, you know, science fiction of the past becomes not science fiction. Jules Verne is still science fiction. It's just science fiction that came out of a particular cultural moment, right? So I don't think, yeah, as technology, as technology advances, it's more like possibilities of speculative fiction proliferate rather than attenuate. You know, old, old speculative fiction is still speculative fiction. How different 
significant slash different would the what if aspect have to be to be considered speculative fiction? I think it can be very slight and I've got no problem with that. And I was thinking of If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, this very short piece that was nominated for and I think won a Nebula Award. And there was a huge debate as to whether it was even speculative fiction, whether it was even science fiction. Because in fact, it's told from the point of view of a narrator who just keeps saying, what if this, what if that, what if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that. And then the ending is the narrator saying, if all of those things, I wouldn't be sitting here by your hospital bed watching you die. And then sort of the debate is, okay, so there were dinosaurs, there was DNA weirdness, there was magic, all of this, except it was all in a what if sense and none of it quote, actually happened in the story, and therefore it's not science fiction. Also, it happened to be written by a woman, and it also happened to be about oppression and got negative reactions, coincidentally. So in that story, in one sense, the what-if aspect is prominent. It's the whole story. In another sense, it doesn't technically show us a, quote, real world in the world of the story. It's just like somebody imagining things. Is that speculative fiction or not? I kind of almost don't care. If it's really good and cool and feels like speculative fiction to me, I'm like, yeah, that's that's awesome. Give it a nebula. And it got one. And that makes me happy. So yeah, not a big fan of gatekeeping, I think is what I'm trying to say. Going along with the themes of speculative fiction, do you have any opinions or thoughts on how the internet has changed or might change written literature as a form? Like the discourse over the emergence of fan fiction and how it affects our ideas about story ownership. Roy, I'm going to personally thank you for asking this. (laughs) Yeah, well, when you mentioned fan fiction in particular, I wouldn't say it's democratized writing, but I do think... I think it's opened up the the possibility of writing for a lot of people who might not have considered it otherwise. That's my that's my gut intuition is that the act of people being able to write stuff and put it out in the world and you know speak thinking of fan fiction in particular and I'm ventriloquizing other writers when I'm saying this because I haven't written fan fiction but I do know that that uh, a lot of professional writers credit fan fiction as as where they learned how to write stories and also where they learned that people would read them you know i can put this out in the world and i get responses back and that's really important writing in in a bubble where you never show anyone your stuff can be a safe place to write but also kind of exhausting and isolating it's this sense of like no one will ever want to read it it's that fear of like oh no one will ever want to read my stuff. And fan fiction communities can be really useful for people to be like, here's my stuff. Tell me what you think. And they'll get responses. That's that's what feeds writing. Or, or it's one of the things that feeds writing is feeling like, yeah, it's being read. Someone's responding to it. Has that changed or might change written literature? My guess would be it's diversified it right? Like just open doors to people who would be gate kept out of more traditional publishing to like write their stuff. I'll always come back to N.K. Jemison. She wrote fan fiction for a long time and, and talks openly about that. And so do a lot of other writers. So, or you were saying like uh, R.F. Quang, that she was also coming out of a fan fiction? No. Or she was fan fictioning? The premise of her her first book in that trilogy came out of a 
almost like an, an alternate universe fan fiction. It was like a what mm. if this instead. Um, right, right, yeah, universe. yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, hey, uh, also a thing for like U of A speculative fiction writers, this is the Creative Writing Club. R.F. Quang was one of the winners of the Dell Award when two U of A students were finalists at that conference. They were all like hanging out together. Her book, her, her first book hadn't come out yet. Why am I saying this? To make it clear that it's possible, submit your stuff to the Dell Award. You might hang out with someone who's just about to have a breakout novel, or you might become someone who's just about to have a breakout novel. This shit happens. That's all. I don't know, something about proximity makes things feel more possible. You know, if you know somebody who... Community, I think, too. Having a community, whether that's online or in a physical space or something here like the club, is um, a good way to immerse yourself in writing circles. And it's how you get to know people and it's how you get to form friendships with other writers. And um, yeah. you support each other mutually along the way. Like, you, know, you stay in contact and you make friends. And I'm nice. Saying, yeah, like... Even stuff like writing workshop class, like I think all, most of the people that I was in that class with, I like the, the right 293, I'm still in contact with and yeah. we still support each other. And like, that's that's a good thing. And because that's, the, those are the people who you're going to be like friends with throughout your career. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hold on to those connections. I'm glad. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And that's also how you learn the business. I mean, not to be capitalistically pragmatic, but. I mean, this is this is how you learn how publishing works, how et cetera, et cetera works is by is by those networks of people and not not in that sort of slimy networking sense of like know the right people and have the right connections. Just um, in that sense of, yeah, having a community of writers, one person's going to pick up a piece of knowledge here. Another person's going to pick up a piece of knowledge here. It's going to circulate through your community of writers and you can share that information and it feeds you right L like you were saying to see someone that you had a class with succeed and publish their first book and get into an mfa makes it real in a sense right it's it's not just a thing that happens to to like people you don't know or these magical things called writers you're like no no this is a thing i could do because see my friend did it right here that's important i think Mm -hmm. Oh, and um, Aisha has something in the chat that I can comment on as well. So she says, not Ooh. a question, but I personally think fan fiction has always existed in some form. We don't always notice it. Even now, retellings are just capitalized fan fiction, if you think about it. And I oh, absolutely cool. agree with you. I can speak on this, yeah. putting my like classic student hat on. Greeks wrote Greek myth fan fiction, like all the time. Mm -hmm. That's all of classic literature. The Oresteia, my favorite play, that was fan fiction. The Divine Comedy, Dante Alighieri, fan fiction, and he redefined Catholicism because of it. Um, uh -huh. It was self-insert fan fiction. That is what it was, and I will die on this hill. Um, <laughs> like um, not just self; it was also real people slash yes, and um, like in hell, all exactly, of that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, even contemporarily, Madeline Miller, whom I love, Song of Achilles queer re-examining of Achilles and Patroclus's relationship, it was always queer. And I will fight a classicist who says it isn't. But also mm -hmm. Circe, Madeline Miller, same thing from Circe's perspective, wonderful feminist novel. I love it dearly. If I can 
promote for a little bit. My story in the anthology is just Greek myth fan fiction. Thanks, Krug. You absolutely enabled me to write a queer retelling of the Hades and Persephone story, which I was really anxious about for a really long time until I talked to Roy and I'm like, this is fan fiction. And Roy's like, yeah, so. <laughs> and? 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 and that's totally true. We've been doing fan fiction like forever. And it's very silly to me that it's almost like seen as like a nerdy thing to do or like a geeky thing to do because it's been going mm. on forever. Since there was a story, it has been revamped and retold and remixed in, in every such way. Totally. That's the way it works. It's one yeah. of the things I like about the spec fic world is that that there's not as much of a sense of fan fiction as like poo-poo that sucks. I mean, at least not among the SF writers I know. There's dicks in any group, right? So so there's probably some SF writers who are like, ah, fan fiction's dumb. Nobody should ever write it. But um, I don't know them and and I don't like them, even though I don't know them. I think spec fic is, yeah, it's a space that that tends to encourage it. Not just encourage, like value it. Yeah. Maybe because it's a field that has fans, like maybe straight up fans. I think this was like a Twitter thread that went around a while ago too, but seeing fanfic is not even just as a place to like learn where to write, but just like as a place where writing like, happens. Like authentic, like real like writing happens. And it is also interesting because it's it exists completely outside of the capitalist machine because it's just people doing what they want to do because they love it. What I also learned in one of my uh, just kind of tangentially over Latin is that amateur means someone who does something for the love of things. I think that's a really fun definition to have of uh, of fan fiction. And I've read fan fiction where I'm like, this is better than things I've read in class. Totally. It's just like there's there's more passionate I, into it, I guess. Spec fic is almost like dual sided in that you have a fandom and then you have the thing that exists that yeah. has its own like world that can be self contained or cannot. I have one question that I've been asked to ask you on behalf of Jake, our finance. And before I ask it, I have to say on record, once again, crew does not condone the usage of illegal substances. And if you're going to use legal ones, please be responsible. What is one artist, whoever it may be, living or dead, that you would like to get high with? <laughs> That's a really good question. Oscar Wilde. Yeah, that's a good one. I think he would be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. What a legend. I think he was high most of the time anyway. But... Well, he was very much invested in, in, in espousing being high. Whether or not he actually was is another question. Mm -hmm. I always feel like his writing's too good to have been written while high. But, I mean, come on. The picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, he yeah. He doesn't drugs with the guy who wrote that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a book about doing drugs. Well among other things among about doing drugs. So yeah, that would be my answer. Yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my quickest answer or maybe Kathy Acker. Although I might end up kind of scared, but it would be fascinating. Well, thank you so much for hopping on and having this wonderful conversation with us, Dr. Bechtel. We really appreciate it. We appreciate all the the knowledge that you've espoused today and thanks for for coming on and I wish yeah. you the the best of luck in your endeavors. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This has been this has been a pleasure. I've enjoyed rambling on at absurd length about random things. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.